Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Welcome back, Solar Warrior, to another Tactical Tuesday. These are shorter form conversations with subject matter experts designed to give you practical tools, tips, and advice for building your solar business and career. Now, a lot of you have faced problems with logistics and you're wondering, maybe just wondering, what does WRO mean? You're seeing prices soar and it's just not clear what's going on with all of our modules and racking and maybe even inverters. Why is there so much slippage? Well, there's nobody in my network who I trust more with the answer to those questions than Andy Klump, CEO and returning guest from Clean Energy Associates. Andy has spent 20 years in China. He spent a lot of time in the solar supply chain and he is here today to answer these questions and more because let's face it, you've got questions, I've got questions and I go get answers. Thank you for giving us your time and attention. These are things that you can't get back. So we're going to lean in and give you a return for that investment today. If you like what you hear right here on Suncast, well, we got more than 400 other episodes with clean energy founders, executives, and entrepreneurs to satiate your appetite for learning. You can listen to them right inside the podcast app you've chosen, or you can go to mysuncast.com where you can find the entire back catalog of episodes. And you can also subscribe to our email so that I can let you know every time a new episode comes out and you can get little tidbits from me on Fridays of what you missed throughout the week. But for now, Let's answer what's up with the WRO and so many other things. Let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior. Here we go with another powerful Tactical Tuesday on Suncast. Every now and then I get to sit before the kings of the industry. And today I quite literally mean that because broadcasting for the first time ever from my home studio here in Durham, North Carolina, I'm sitting with my buddy, Andy Klump, who just popped over to say hi. Andy, how you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for the invitation. You're a wonderful home and it's good to be here in person once again. It's so surreal actually to have you in my house here in Durham. You know, our, our friendship and professional relationship that is now probably close to a decade long by and large is over video conference with you living in China and me living in many different places now in North America. You know, let's start with before we head out to dinner and chat about all kinds of things that can't be recorded. Let's start a little bit with what brought you from China back to the States for uh, what now has been an extended tour. And uh, I'd love to learn some of the things that you've learned, but let's kind of start with what brought you back over for this this tour. Absolutely. Well, my initial intention was to start uh, in early August with a chance to reconnect with the team and uh, CA's uh, U.S. organization. We actually have over 55 uh, professionals, uh, mostly engineers, in-house. And so uh, many of which have been hired in the last 18 months and I've never seen. So it was an opportunity to get a, have a team gathering 
in San Jose. We did this in uh, in mid-August. And then uh, the bookend of the trip was going to be SPI, after which I was going to head back. But uh, due to circumstances beyond our control, that didn't happen. I made the trip plan prior to, uh, to Delta really spreading. And so I've now been traveling around, visiting a lot of the customers that I would have seen at SPI. Instead, now uh, having a lot more personalized one-on-one meetings in various parts of the country. Yeah, you've been traveling madman. Uh, I've been, I've had the pleasure of kind of watching you touch down in all over Chicago, New York, DC, and all parts in between a lot of flyover country as well. Where has been the most interesting place that you have visited on this trip? I would say the most fascinating by far has been my visit to Washington, DC and meeting a lot of the policymakers who are asking a lot of very interesting questions because solar has now become a part of their agenda. Finally, thank yes, goodness. Yes, absolutely. And it's not just the climate change agenda. It's uh, it's also understanding about what are the obstacles to deploying more solar, unfortunately. So yeah. there's a, a lot of education that I've been involved with in, uh, in, in various uh, departments in, uh, in Washington, D.C. It's fun watching you, the unwitting advocate, fly over from China and get pulled into these meetings with uh, a lot of higher ups that we probably can't mention here on the recording, but that have non- nonetheless been uh, providing a lot of influence for how our industry is directly and indirectly affected. And that's what we want to dispel for you all myths and give you some real truths about what's happening at the sort of at the at the higher levels and up chain in our supply chain that can whether you realize it or not they can impact your business today and your plans for tomorrow. Andy and I both have been in the industry for 15 years and we've seen a lot of uh a lot of analog or a lot of uh, scenarios that look scarily similar to what we're experiencing right now. So we're going to unpack a bunch of those things, acronyms and the like that you will be hearing if you read enough in the industry journals. And, and if you don't, then I'm glad you're a listener to Suncast because you're going to get some of the inside information that isn't even be co- being covered in journals uh, and, uh, yet. Uh, th- by the time this is published, just shortly before Thanksgiving, Andy hopefully will be on his way back to China to see his family. And this will be relatively hot off the press information for you guys to digest and, and, and uh, ingest into your business plans. I want to start with an acronym that if you're not familiar with, as I was relatively unfamiliar with it, you should be, and we'll talk about why it matters. But Andy, there's an acronym being volleyed around that uh, I just d- didn't understand neither what it means or the implications. It's called WRO. Can you define it and then give us some context about what, what it is and why it matters? Correct. The WRO is the withhold release order put in place by the uh, by CBP, another acronym, but Customs and Border Protection. CBP looks after our borders and they also look after the product that comes in to the United States. And there are some concerns about the labor content in some of the products in our solar crystalline solar supply chain that's been coming in from overseas. And so consequently, a withhold release order was put in place in late June of this year. So the WRO is essentially the order that is allowing or disallowing product across the border, most of which in our case, as we talk a lot about inverters and modules and many other balance of system components that would be coming in through the various ports, both the east and west, and even down in Houston here in the United States that serve our industry. I think the utility scale side of our business is probably feeling the biggest pinch on that. But w- what are some of the main constraints or, or drawbacks that are impacting your clients and many others as a, as a uh, result of the WRO? 
Well, one of the biggest challenges is that the uh, CBP has put in place a, a, a requirement that companies who are manufacturers and they are importer of record of solar modules show the traceability of where their components came from. But they're highlighting a subcomponent which has not been tracked in our industry ever in my 15-year history, nor has it been uh, something that's been recognized or, or talked about before mm. in the sector, and that is metallurgical-grade silicon. Mm. And so the source of that metallurgical-grade silicon that's manufactured by uh, a company by the name of Hoshine mm-hmm. is the material that is in question. So the CBP has the chance to seize different products that they are concerned may have this subcomponent material. But the the reality is uh, one cannot determine from uh, observing a, a solar module where those subcomponents came from mm-hmm. without having a thorough traceability system in place. Yeah. And unfortunately, that system uh, or that requir- requirement was put in place after a lot of these products had been manufactured and there was no traceability system. I appreciate you explaining what the WRO is. And in particular, we'll probably circle back around to this notion of traceability and how that can actually be handled but what are the broad reaching impacts of these products being withheld and in many cases sent back at the port? Correct. So first and foremost, there are thousands of jobs that are at stake here in the United States because they are installing solar modules and variety of utility scale applications throughout the U.S. And unfortunately, the WRO has created uncertainty that is impacting some manufacturers from actually importing them into the United States. So there are two manufacturers uh, that are both tier ones that are importing or planning to import gigawatts of product into the U.S. that now these products are being uh, sent elsewhere. And there's some that are actually imported and sitting at the customs in the United States. They're not being able to be imported. So there are there are uh, hundreds of projects that are stranded. And they can't, uh, the workers can't install modules because the racking, uh, you know, cabling, everything else for the system is ready. Mm. And so this is going to have a dramatic impact of uh, potential job loss in our industry, mm-hmm. much more so than I think what a lot of the policy policymakers were aware of prior to some of the meetings I've had in Washington, D.C. In, uh, in September. By and large, a lot of the work that I know you're focused on and, and get engaged in is around rather large scale. We may refer to them as utility scale, central plants, the provision of product for those plants, the quality assurance for those plants, even the engineering for those plants. And I can see how those would have a direct impact on the utility scale sector. Does it have a similar or knock-on effect to the distributed generation sector? It absolutely does, because what has happened is with uh, with two major manufacturers not importing product into the U.S., it's caused a squeeze on modules, and we've seen pricing go up. Uh, we've seen a number of uh, you know DG installers, uh, both you know once again CNI and, and residential players, who are now seeing cost increase, and they uh, correspondingly are having a harder time obtaining product. Yeah, uh, I even had a, a call this morning from someone who was looking for a 1.8 megawatts of product that uh, is now withheld at the customs. That's small. I mean, that's a relatively small Absolutely. order. Absolutely. So once again, every uh, every container has 300 kilowatts. And so that's a six container order that is is being stopped. And so after 90 days, the manufacturer has the choice to either have the product be destroyed or they can ship the product elsewhere. So it's hard to imagine that we could see thousands of solar containers be destroyed 
but that is technically how the law is, is written. So it's up to CBP's choice if the manufacturer does not re-export them to another market. So silver lining, our listeners in Africa and uh, Asia and Latin America could be seeing product that needs to be moved at relatively quickly. And so there's price advantage. Uh, potentially that is, uh, yes, that is one way to look at it. Uh, so uh, there is an opportunity for those folks. Uh, yeah. But once again, a lot of, it's a shame because a lot of this product, which has been made in Southeast Asia to abide by the current ADCVD uh, provisions that are blocking Chinese made modules. Now that's higher cost product, which is now being shifted to other markets. Right. So it's a loss to the manufacturers and it's a loss to the industry. Yeah. And as I mentioned to you, I sent you some messages that I received from one of my colleagues down in Mexico because a lot of the expansion we're seeing in Latin America is by and large led by investors from Europe and the United States with operations in Latin America. And we'll just use Latin America as an example. This is true in other places as well. We're seeing that due to, thankfully, the increased awareness in ESG and the implications, these companies headquartered in Europe and the United States are effectively enforcing the same WRO type restrictions on project being built for them in Latin America. So it's not completely, and, and those are by and large the large projects, right? The large CNI and the and the small to medium uh, utility projects. So it's not as though uh, we will see zero effects outside of the United States. I think that that's one of the messages I want to sort of sound out here is whether or not this is something that's just going to affect our market in the United States, categorically it will, but I expect that we'll also see this sort of ripple effect around the world. So once again, it depends how other uh, other uh, countries actually respond with actual specific policy uh, implementation. The U.S. has led the policy debate on this topic, and they're enforcing a 1930s law on this topic of uh, labor practices and requesting traceability that, once again, it doesn't exist so manufacturers aren't able to present that. But what it is triggering is many different companies are trying to take uh, different positions to have an alternative supply chain. One example is Jinko Solar has announced a 25,000 metric ton supply agreement for polysilicon from Wacker Chemi. Uh, Wacker, as the American pronunciation, is a, is a German manufacturer in Berghausen. Uh, I've actually been there myself because I used to buy polysilicon when I worked at Trina 15 years ago. They're actually buying uh, effectively uh, all this product over the next several years. And there actually will be manufacturing both ingots and wafers in Vietnam to the tune of roughly seven gigawatts of capacity. That uh, capacity will be ramping up in Q1 and active in Q2. And so Jinko will be fully able to abide by uh, the requirements of CBP to, uh, to have modules that are not even made in China. So it'll be entirely non-Chinese based supply chain. So this will be, just so I'm clear, this will be ingot and wafer capacity coming from non-Chinese supply, presumably coming to the Jinko facility they've recently put in the United States? So Jinko has a module manufacturing facility in Jacksonville, Florida, but that's only uh, you know, a smaller capacity, roughly 500 megawatts. But the most of Jinko's facilities right now are in Malaysia. Mm -hmm. And so, but effectively you're taking German polysilicon manufacturing ingots and wafers in Vietnam, and then they will ship those to uh, Malaysia for both cells and module production, and then those modules will then be shipped to the U.S. If it's dizzying for you, that's why I wanted to have Andy here, because in fact, this is very complex. Uh, you, you use a word 
that I've heard Daryl, who was recently on the show, mention, and I know that this is something that's a big piece of your practice called provenance. Can you explain the idea of provenance and traceability and just how hard this all is for a company like yours that basically focuses you know, more than half of your resources on it? Absolutely. So once again, CA has over 175 professionals in 13 countries, but 85 of our team members are involved in inspection work, uh, mostly in China, but also in Southeast Asia. And so our teams have been engaged with working with many suppliers and getting access to documentation about where they obtain their upstream materials. So once again, the module manufacturer has to show where their cells are coming from. The cell manufacturer has to show where the uh, wafers are coming from. And then the wafer manufacturer shows where the ingots are coming from. And there's some manufacturers who are vertically integrated through those parts of the chain, but very few uh, also make polysilicon as well. So our teams are engaged both with doing uh, desktop research as well as uh, completing factory inspections for manufacturers. Uh, and everyone in the industry at, at a certain scale has an MES, a manufacturing execution system. So that gives uh, a you know, clear system in place for this uh, traceability. So our teams are validating all the, the records and making sure that uh, the downstream companies are, uh, are seeing all, all these records in place. The, the implications of this particular form of trade barrier for, for many of us uh, who've been around for a little while in the industry, uh, we've seen, kind of seen this before. You mentioned earlier ADCVD, anti-dumping and countervailing duties that were introduced through uh, a solar world and then Suniva petition to the United States government effectively, what, so 2013, 2014? It was uh, December 2014, the Department of Commerce put those in place. And so if effectively the regulatory, if I think back in my, my 15 years in solar, it definitely is reminiscent of that time. And at that time in 2015, I had a lot of folks saying, oh, you know, the world, you know, the U.S. market can't survive without Chinese made modules. But instead, the manufacturers proactively looked at approaches of building another supply chain. And that's that's where it's evolved in other markets. So I think a lot of folks, perhaps, that aren't as close to the issue as you may look at this and go, wait a minute, we've got the, the ADCVD in place. How is this different from that? Is this additional cost on top of what we've already been effectively penalized in the market to, to accept that for what it's worth, like weren't captured either in the 2013 to 2015 um, financial models uh, predicting what the the cost hurdles are going to be for these projects. I have to assume that this is similarly affecting projects that developed three plus years ago are now being put in the ground with certain cost expectations. H how does this compare with ADCVD? Is ADCVD still in fact in place? Like talk to me a little bit. Correct. About <laughs> so we have to separate the WRO from uh, ADCVD. Once again, there's uh, multiple ADCVD cases. Unfortunately, the ADCVD that we're all accustomed to is the one uh, based off of Chinese cells and modules. And so the recent ADCV case that's been brought up by two unnamed petitioners has occurred in the last uh, month or so. And it's been brought about uh, against the manufacturers of crystalline solar modules in Malaysia, Vietnam, and Thailand. So, so not Europe, United States. No, correct. <laughs> I mean, I'm saying like, if you aren't in Europe or United States or South Africa, this one's targeting you. <laughs> this, so this, uh, this ADCV case is just for the US, but it's just for Got it. crystalline modules. So once again, uh, anyone making uh, ah, so thin film is 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 accepted. So one asked the question, why isn't thin film included? And the mm. two unnamed petitioners did not list thin film. They just focused on crystalline cells and modules. 
Yeah, well, that's that's quite interesting given the percentage of utility scale projects in particular that use thin film. Correct. There's a very small percentage of the industry that is uh, fed by first solar. And so once again, there are manufacturers, uh, there are developers who still use their product. The majority of the market is still relying on crystalline uh, crystalline product from Southeast Asia. Quite interesting. So to, to answer the question then about, you know, once again, we have the WRO, which is separate from the mm-hmm. ADCVD, and then it's also separate from the 201. And so you still have to remember that the 201 was supposed to have a step down uh, in early next year, but there still is some questions on what will happen with the, the 201 and will it be extended at the current rate of 18%. And uh, that is also another uh, regulatory uncertainty that the industry uh, takes into account. But once again, we're, we're talking about a, a very small step down, you know, 18% to 15%. It's not a game changer. Mm-hmm. What is a game changer? is of what? Uh, 15% of the cost. Mm-hmm. So there's a, effectively a, a tariff adder right. due to the 201. Right. But effectively, the ADCVD has a, in Southeast Asia, has a much more dramatic impact on the whole industry. Right. And right now, as of uh, late, uh, this is uh, this day of this recording in late mm-hmm. October, we're still in the 45-day window for the Department of Commerce to make a decision on whether the responses, which were submitted by the two unnamed petitioners, will be accepted. And they, the Department of Commerce can effectively throw out this decision and say, we are not going to conduct an investigation. And so without an ADCVD in Southeast Asia, I think the market can still move ahead. On the WRO, there is an impact on two specific manufacturers. But there is a concern that the WRO may be extended to uh, to others uh, in the industry. So there are many factors impacting the supply chain, and this leads to a tremendous amount of uncertainty about the 2022 module landscape and where folks can can source their uh, their products from. And folks will, you know, they'll inev- invariably figure out where they can source modules from. I think the overarching question that they'll have is at what cost. Where are you? seeing price thresholds right now let's just say for the sake of argument for utility scale procurement 20 megawatts end up correct so we see products at uh 40 cents ddp as a a kind of delivered at the delivered to port uh delivered to site so once again uh ddp right okay is uh, delivered duty paid delivered duty paid so that's directly to the job site yeah uh, but that is a that's a minimum. We're also seeing numbers that are in the the low 40s, call it 43 to the you know, mid 40s. Yeah. So even for some utility scale projects, uh, we're seeing those quotes uh, throwing out there. But it is the, the economics are completely upside down for most developers. So that's at give, that level. give some context of what that number was six to 12 months ago. So if you look back uh, 12 plus months ago, we saw quotes that were even going into the high 20s ddp uh, ddp 27 cents delivered uh to job site that many folks were then banking on and once again for 20 early 22 deliveries and they were ex- also making projections we'd be at the mid 20s by yeah. 2023 so many projects uh are completely upside down when all of a sudden you have a 13 to 15 cent module price swing does this blow your mind i remember when you were procuring polysilicon for Trina, our assembly pricing was north of 50 cents, right? It was like... It was, uh, it, was north of, uh, it was north of a dollar a watt at one point in time. But yes, my early stage in the industry, I remember seeing this rapid increase in polysilicon cost. At the time I entered the industry in 2006, we saw polysilicon pricing at roughly 150 US dollars per kilo. 
once again, on a product that cost $30 a kilo to make, it seemed crazy high. But then the pricing skyrocketed all the way to $475 per kilo in the in the summer of 2008 mm-hmm. at the height of the Spanish uh, PV boom. Yeah. So it then dropped dramatically uh, almost to $100 uh, literally within two years. And then... And nearly uh, bankrupt Vocker. Oh, absolutely. It, it, bankrupt, it, it, bank, well, it did bankrupt REC effectively. <laughs> it, it Many manufacturers could not adapt because they were new to the industry and they had price costs that were above $100 a kilo. But the long-term makers, once again, folks like Vockert still had costs that were sub $30 a kilo, and they continue to reduce those costs. And then the industry continues to see a pricing drop from roughly 2011 till 2020, uh, till all the way at the point where the cost, you know, were, or the selling prices were below cost at roughly $10 a kilo. You know, it only recently occurred to me how hard it is right now for you guys in the field to get the product that you need. I helped a buddy get a couple of megawatts of solar panels for a project pipeline and started asking around. And it turns out this issue with WRO and shipping logistics is a nightmare. And many of you are stuck on the sidelines with projects you thought you'd be installed by now and you need solar panels. Well, the perfect, beautiful, you know, highest wattage panels might not be available, but there is plenty of product out there. If that sounds like a need for you, even if it's inverters, racking, trackers, but certainly solar panels, Give me a jingle. Let's see if we can help connect you with the right folks. Nico at mysuncast.com. You can also WhatsApp, text message, send a carrier pigeon. 510-427-8643 is my cell phone. Let's see if we can help. Hate seeing my solar warriors stranded on the sidelines with projects that should be installed. And we can help you get those across the finish line. Again, that's Nico at mysuncast.com. Put in the subject line, Nico, help me with fill in the blank, modules, inverters, whatever it is. Okay. Hey, pardon the interruption, but I wanted to just let you know how much of an impact you have on Suncast. Yeah, you. Thank you for clicking play. Without you, this show is just me shouting into the void. But there's still people who don't even know about Suncast. I know. I can hardly believe it myself. (laughs) But that's where you can help me yet again. There's a simple way that you can show some love and help others discover the show. If you cruise over to www.ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast, I'd love it if you would leave a five-star rating and enthusiastic review. That's possibly the single kindest thing that you could do for me today. So if the show has helped, inspired, or even entertained you at all, I'd love it if you would head over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast and give me a virtual two thumbs up. All right, back to today's episode. So there's a lot of things that we could spend an entire hour just talking about the cost stack of solar modules that you and I've spent a lot, a lot of our career thinking about and, and, and um, in conversation about. But I'm curious for folks that are just thinking about putting solar panels on roofs, they would be looking at this asking a question, okay, 40 cents at a utility scale uh, maybe even they were getting quoted mid thirties from their distributors as early as, you know, six to eight months ago. If we look over that course of time, what is it that drove prices consistently down despite things like ADCBD being put in place? As you said, there was a whole lot of the sky is falling in 2011 and 2015, uh, yet prices continue to drop down into the high twenties. 
So what is it that contributed to driving those prices down despite all these headwinds? And then what is conversely, and I think the monkey wrench in the conversation that we need to talk about uh, as well, now driving those prices back up? So there are a lot of factors that led to a large price decline, but part of it was just demand driven. Obviously, during COVID, no one was installing modules in some of the key markets. Uh, China in Q1 of 2020 effectively went to zero. And uh, a lot of other folks, as they were installing in other parts of the world, they didn't fully appreciate the the level that the pandemic would have uh, or the influence of the pandemic in many different markets. So installation was a challenge. And uh, once again, in late 2020, everyone saw module demand. Uh, you know, once again, in certain, it, it, it leveled off. It was not nearly as robust as what was projected prior to the pandemic. But what did happen in early 2021 is partially what uh, has led to this cost increase. So once again, we had pricing of solar uh, polysilicon at the $10 a kilo level, but then all of a sudden China announced in uh, you know January of 2021, uh, the fact that they have a carbon neutrality pledge by 2060. And so pricing jumped dramatically for polysilicon. It, it doubled almost overnight to $20 a kilo, and then it slowly edged its way up to mid 20s. And then we saw it pricing level off really midway through this year, right around the, the high 20s. And then what's happened in the last month or so is there was a change in the energy policy within China and then energy shortage emerged for a few reasons. One, uh, China had announced uh, the previous year that they were stopping the restricting imports of coal from Australia due to trade issues. And uh, they, you know, two, they also had increased uh, you know, demand once again, as many folks uh, during the pandemic in places like the U.S. could not travel, they started spending money on a lot of goods. And so we started to see, you know, massive uh, supply chain bottlenecks. And so there was a increased demand for more goods. So that also drove uh, drove pricing up. But the other factor is uh, is clearly the cost of, uh, of overall containers and shipping. And so all those prices together led to massive cost increases in polysilicon. So we now see polysilicon in the upper 30s, and that is a, a much higher driver of uh, the upstream cost. But once again, the energy shortage, uh, we now have seen China enact a policy in 15 different provinces where they're restricting energy-intensive industries. And so upstream metallurgical-grade silicon, polysilicon, and ingoting are all energy hogs and consume a lot of energy to produce those products. So that has led to massive price increase of roughly three to five cents per watt uh, in this overall cost. So that's the first driver of cost. The second one uh, is clearly the increase in uh, logistics. I just highlighted that. Right now we see logistics uh, pricing, which used to be as low as, used to be uh, you know $2,000 per container. And now we're seeing it over $25,000. And that's often just delivered to the port of Long Beach. And you have long waiting time for the product to actually be unloaded, which is part of the issue. And then you have inland transportation costs. So when you look at the final delivered cost, you're looking at additional seven cents a watt that used to be, you know, one and a half to two cents a watt. So once again, another five cent adder. And then there's also various other increases uh, in both on glass, EVA, uh, other, other raw materials that are in the solar module manufacturing process have also been uh, been hit. So all of these different adders on, on top are effectively leading to this 13 to 15 cent uh, per watt price price swing from the high 20s where we, we talked about uh, to the low 40s. It's worth noting that while the United States is one of the largest uh, 
demand markets for product. It's by no means the only market in the world. We're seeing massive commitments globally, in particular, one that I want to mention or and, and hear from uh, India, where all of a sudden the manufacturers have a lot more opportunity and options for where to send the product. It, of course, they want to and need to send to the United States and, and to Europe. How do you see other global markets impacting our ability to continue to hold stable and eventually drive prices back down and, and scale up our ability to blanket blanket the U.S. with solar. So the India market is absolutely one of those uh, demand drivers. Uh, there's a policy in mid-2022 where uh, India will uh, be uh, having a tariff on Chinese manufactured products, both on cells as well as modules. And so it's going to they're trying to encourage more domestic manufacturing within India. So as a result, there's been many manufacturers trying to develop projects, uh, import extra product uh, to deploy in uh, you know late 21, early 22, and even mid 22 uh, for you know manufacturing of modules in uh, in India. So consequently, we've also seen many uh, Indian buyers of solar cells and modules consequently have uh, you know high cost increase. So that's been one of the demand drivers, and the other demand driver is clearly China itself. And so last year, China still had a 48 gigawatt market, but effectively installed 30 gigawatts in Q4 alone. And they uh, they had a, a plan, a pledge uh, or a plan to deploy 60 to 80 gigawatts this year. But uh, due to the high price of polysilicon, uh, some of those installations slowed. Uh, so there's still some question marks as how, how much China will deploy, but it still is likely to be a 50 to 55 gigawatt market. So once again, in a very compressed period of time, key markets like India and China do have an impact on upstream pricing of polysilicon in getting a wafering. And so while they may not help uh, or pinch U.S.-based supply, which is coming mostly out of Southeast Asia, these uh, other upstream cost shifts are, are certainly flowing out into uh, to solar module pricing. So we didn't talk about this ahead of sitting down to record, but a thing that occurs to me, especially given Clean Energy Associates' A track record of quality assurance is that surely you're looking at how the India supply market is growing and how are the U.S. EPCs and developers and asset owners that you're working with thinking about and viewing the India market as a potential supply opportunity given the headwinds on Southeast Asia? So uh, from an ADCVD Southeast Asian perspective, uh, the Indian-based manufacturers can be a, a solution because they do have uh, capacity that exists outside of Southeast Asia. So there is growth from some of those manufacturers. But keep in mind, newer manufacturers also have, are prone to having a lot of problems yeah. and defects. So extra QA work is absolutely needed. Uh, we've seen that firsthand in uh, many factories around the world. But this still does not solve the upstream issues about where are the provenance of the upstream materials coming from. Because still 97% of the world's ingots and wafers are still manufactured in China as of today. Golly. And so uh, the, the WRO still requires that manufacturers, even from India, provide upstream provenance. And that's, uh, that's a challenge for them. Well, it seems like, as, as Andy pointed out, for those of you who are currently sitting on a need for modules, uh, you're, you're probably looking into a long waiting line. That's one problem that we'll have to solve. Another, we've talked about Southeast Asia potentially through this ADCVD second petition being hit as a, as a supplier. It lends to an additional question. You know, in the previous administration, as well as this one, there has been 
a strong push for domestic manufacturing. It seems like a lot of this regulatory uh, headwind is effectively going to force a U.S. manufacturing industry that, you know, for the last 10 plus years, we have by and large avoided because it just isn't as cost effective. I'm curious your thoughts on both the uh, the realistic likelihood and the impact to the the um, the near term ability for us to scale if we do in fact just bring much of the manufacturing we need to U.S. shores. So we absolutely do believe there will be a rebirth of uh, some U.S. based manufacturing, but a lot of it depends on how policy will be adopted. Uh, in the current infrastructure uh, plan, there is a special provision for domestic made uh, products, and so there's separate carve outs for polysilicon and getting wafering cells and modules that uh, ITC uh, require domestic content requirement could stimulate a very large build out of multi gigawatts of solar manufacturing capacity. But we I agree with your comment, there hasn't been much manufacturing except in you know, 2017, there was some uh, some interest and a lot of manufacturers looked into it. And then once again, Hanwha and Jinko did adopt, uh, you know, uh, uh, the plan to expand in the US, uh, both in uh, Florida, as well as uh, uh, Georgia, respectively. So there's been some manufacturing uh, that's been put in place, but it wasn't enough to really stimulate a broader ecosystem. And so we are absolutely supportive of uh, of more U.S.-based manufacturing. We actually have a team that does uh, simple on-the-ground inspections for our, uh, our clients that want domestic-made product. But one of the key challenges, once again, is that policymakers need to have a, a support for the overall ecosystem, not just the modules, but also have to look at cells and all the subcomponents. And so it needs to be part of a 10-year build-out, not just a four-year build-out. So I think that uh, that message is being heard, and I do think there are some supporting more U.S.-based manufacturing. So we see that as part of the solution, and we uh, absolutely encourage both open trade barriers, or, or I should say lack of trade barriers, but open trade for products outside of the U.S., as well as some uh, domestic manufacturing incentives. Yeah, and this is the thing that I think, uh, by and large, has been missed in U.S. policy setting that, uh, you know, Reagan Farr mentioned, you and I talked a bit about, the, you know, mm-hmm. he was really clear, how did he get a plant set up in Tennessee? Well, he went to visit a plant, I think it was Vacher plant in uh, in China, and the guy from Vacher said, look, they've lowered all the hurdles and all the barriers, and we're building entire you know, business parks. We have not only our glass manufacturers and our EVA providers, but our pallet manufacturers are right here on site. How, how can the U.S. compete with that? And that broadly is kind of the thing that I've always said. You know, it doesn't make sense for us to bring it back on shore. The reality from a policy perspective uh, and a jobs perspective is, okay, if we embrace the fact that this can create jobs and with our quantitative easing and our current fiscal policy, like we've got relatively low interest and states can uh, manage their tax plans as they see fit. This provides a great opportunity for competition among the various states and in particular in the Southeast where where there's a lot of land and a lot of folks being affected by the move away from fossil fuel into uh, renewables. How have the conversations you've had just in the time that you've been uh, on your whirlwind tour here lent credibility to how the states are viewing, in particular, like the states are seeing this opportunity? Are, are they seeing it? Are you hearing from policymakers at a state level, or is it still something that's still sort of circling in D.C. and, and hasn't made its way down to the states as an opportunity yet? 
Well, I do think, uh, I think there's a, a variety of ways to look at this. I think individual states do have uh, some favorable policies towards, uh, towards promoting manufacturing, but it needs to be looked in combination, both at the federal level and the state level. And at the federal level, I think there is, based on our conversations with you know, National Security Council, Department of Energy, Department of Homeland Security, many different folks are looking at this from different angles. But I think everyone uh, is certainly open and willing to have more U.S.-based manufacturing. But it's also important to understand among the 230,000 jobs in solar today, roughly 160,000 are based in construction and installation. And so these are the folks who are taking the modules that are often coming from overseas and putting them on rooftops or installing them in solar, uh, you know, solar utility scale solar installations. So, um, yes, you both need state level support as well as federal level support. But looking at it holistically, the ba- biggest bang for your buck is clearly on the installation uh, part of the of the industry. But look, the the U.S. absolutely does want to have uh, some reshoring and development of, uh, of a U.S.-based manufacturing supply chain and that needs those uh, federal-level incentives and then certain state-level uh, support. Well, Andy, as is usually the case, I feel like we could talk about this for another hour, but uh, I want to try to see if we can sum it up with some actionable steps, both for listeners as well as participants at large in the industry. If you had an opportunity to give advice to our current administration, what would that advice be? And then a follow-on to that would be, how can we as individuals in the industry participate and contribute to ensuring that this goes in the direction that we need it to go? So if I had one message to give to uh, U.S.-based policymakers is let the industry prosper on its own with uh, less regulation and provide clarity about if there are regulations in place, what is the reasonable expectation for manufacturers and importers of record to abide by those uh, those restrictions? So in the case of the WRO, it's providing clarity about what uh, level of transparency is needed around traceability protocols and making sure the industry has time to actually implement those protocols. And then I guess this my second message would be the Department of Commerce for the U.S. to hit its climate change goals that the Biden administration has put out, we absolutely need product from Southeast Asia to be installed by the tens of thousands of workers that are eager and waiting to uh, to install out of solar modules. And obviously, as I said before, we're very open to having U.S.-based manufacturing. So that could be a portion of incentives. And those manufacturers who make those investments, they they should get rewarded for that uh, that long-term view on the U.S.-based supply chain. Andy, what final piece of advice would you give to those of us in the industry or have you been giving to folks in the industry as you travel around, uh, given the deep insight that you have about where things are going and, and the way that, you know, the, 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 the nice edge that we're on one side or the other? So uh, certainly uh, reaching out to your congressman is, is quite, quite important to make sure your voice is, uh, is heard because uh, solar job growth has been off the charts and will continue to grow if the right policy support is there or there are no obstacles in place. But I think secondarily, uh, I think part of it is uh, be observant of what's uh, the impact of these supply chain disruptions have on your projects. We increasingly see many folks uh, shifting out projects from 20, 2022 to 2023 and beyond. But I think the, 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 the key message is stay hopeful and make sure to have uh, advanced supply chain planning. Don't depend on any one supplier or any one source of 
uh, a product to meet all your needs. So that's where a diversified supply chain approach, working with smart folks that are uh, connected throughout uh, the value chain and give uh, help to give providence of uh, upstream materials. Uh, these are all important tips to uh, as, uh, as, as you grow and expand your solar business. And now, because you're listening to Suncast, you are smarter and capable of going to your suppliers and asking how these and other implications will impact your price and your their their price and their ability to deliver. Uh, I've talked to folks who have reached out to their distributors, for example, and said, "How does this, you know, WRO uh, these labor restrictions affect uh, availability and price?" And the answer came back as, "Oh, it doesn't affect it at all." And uh, the logical question that in, in one case in particular, the guy said back was, oh, so you've proactively procured sufficient supply that's already on our shores that you don't have to worry about any delays. And their answer was, well, what do you mean? Right. So by, by, by tuning into Suncast, as an example, you are able to go back and manage your own, uh, ma- manage the expectations of your supply chain and your own future. I full I wholeheartedly support what Andy says, which is you you can't be uh, myopic in your view on this relationship or that relationship where it concerns twenty twenty two in particular supply chain. And if you're having trouble with that supply, certainly you can reach out to me. And I know Andy probably gets these calls uh, on the regular, like he mentioned. How do I get one point eight megawatts? Uh, our friend Jan, who has his buying group. I know that they're doing a lot at trying to help folks get uh, product across the borders and into warehouses. Uh, there's lots of resources available. Feel free to reach out. And uh, if you are not connected with Andy, I'd be happy to help you make that a reality. Andy, if folks want to connect with you, how do you like to be found? Where's the best place they can find you? LinkedIn is the best way to reach me. It is uh, by far some the the um, channel that I connect, I, I look at the most. So spending a lot of time in your DMs. Absolutely, absolutely. So reach out to me anytime. Fantastic. Well, Andy, thank you for taking time to help us sift the wheat from the chaff here as we try to understand what's happening in the global supply chain, uh, new world order, and uh, we'll look to have you back if the ADCBD does fall into place against Southeast Asia to try to figure out what next. Hopefully it won't. When will we hear from uh, from that? It could be at any point in the next uh, next month, but it's uh, but it's likely by uh, by early December. Early December. OK, so I'll be reaching out to you, hopefully, after you've quarantined uh, in, in China and enjoying time back in your homeland or in your in your home, rather. Uh, in the meantime, I wish you safe travels. Thank you for stopping by Suncast headquarters. And uh, we'll be seeing you again pretty soon. Absolutely, Nico. It's always great to be here. Okay, well, as you heard, there are a lot of things to think about. Prices are going up. Logistics is tight. How's it going to affect your business? Did this answer all your questions? Would you like me to jump on a LinkedIn Live or some other way to connect you with Andy? Should we jump on Clubhouse? You can reach out to me, Nico, at mysuncast.com and let me know. And as I mentioned in the mid-roll, if you skipped that, and you're staying around to the end, if you are having problems yourself with WRO and getting product to your site, email me and let me see if I can help unlock those channels of product to you. Maybe better price, maybe modules that you can get next week instead of two months from now. Nico at mysuncast.com. Happy to help. 
If you're eager to keep learning on this topic, well, you, my fellow Philomath, can jump over to the resources and highlights from this and every other discussion, clicking on the episodes button and mysuncast.com. And that's where we link to the, today's guest, their social media links, the book recommendations, if they gave any, and other blog posts, et cetera, that will help you along your journey. Come back on Thursday where we have another long form episode queued up for you to help you figure out how your career will blossom in this unbelievable industry of clean energy that we all find ourselves. Thanks once again to our sponsors who help make this show free to you. You can learn more about them at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. It's also how you can learn where you can partner with us and reach thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions just like you twice a week. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. <laughs>